Hey, another podcast. I think I'm like Joe Dimaggio. But I think I'm like eight in a row right now. We're going to try to get to 56. Evan Barnes joins us, the uh, Memphis Commercial Appeal, but he is a son of Southern California, Inglewood High, University of San Diego, Daily Breeze, Southern California News Group, Daily News, right? Am I missing anything? The last stop was the Daily News. Yeah. That's although I have to say, not Inglewood High. I was raised in Inglewood, but I went to school in West L.A. Okay. Where'd you, where'd you go to high school? West L.A. Baptist, which no longer exists, but okay, we had a really good basketball team when I was there and a good volleyball team, too, girls' volleyball. That's, see, now that's interesting. I'd like to delve into that with you. So, like, high, growing up where I grew up, the big basketball power was St. Anthony, Bobby Hurley, St. Anthony, and that no longer exists. And for a while, they had St. Pat's, which kind of got the plug, plug pulled. Kevin Boyle was there for a while, and now it's called the Patrick School. So it's really weird seeing schools that were there when you were a kid not exist anymore. So we'll have to do a West BA. Go and dig into your archive for the West Baptist LA stuff, and we'll talk about that next time. Um, but I wanted to actually talk to you because, well, first of all, you had been given a great assignment, Evan, and you were covering the Memphis Grizzlies, covering the NBA for the commercial appeal, and then all of a sudden the plug gets pulled on the season. And what's interesting from your perspective is you kind of came in mid-season recover the team and then all of a sudden the season ended take me through the ups and downs as you're running up and down those hills over there in, in memphis covering the grizz it was interesting because literally i got i was told before the cotton bowl that our grizzlies writer was going to be leaving for cbs sports so um we were t- i was told basically look you know you're going to be the guy who covers the grizzlies on an interim basis and in my head, I'm like, okay, cool. Let me focus on the Cotton Bowl right now because Memphis is a big game here, and I want to make sure that I'm ready for that. So cover the Cotton Bowl, which was an incredible rush. Come back, take my vacation to L.A., and it's like, all right, well, we got this Grizzlies job waiting for me or kind of like there, so I'm just going to see what happens. And so I spent the week after I got back shadowing our Grizzlies writer, went to every practice, every game, just to kind of get to know people. And then here we are thrust into the season and not just thrust into the season, we're kind of thrust into this, this winning streak that they're on. The winning streak that kind of got them from being at the back of the Western Conference to being in the middle of the eight-seed race. And that was really fun because it's like, oh, now I'm coming to a team that's winning. It's exciting. John Morant is having this you know, incredible rookie year. So it was really fun. And I came to think of this as not just doing it on an interim basis, but I really came to love it as like, this is a really cool way to kind of see how things are different than covering college football. So we're enjoying that. You know, I go on the road trip that they went on, four-game road trip on the West Coast, which was a, an incredible blessing to cover a game at Staples Center. I mean, that was probably top five moment of my career, my life, really, because for the Lakers game, my mom and my sister showed up, and we lived in Inglewood near the Forum. We used to go to Lakers games. So after the game, we took a picture, and that was really, really cool just to have the three of us there. And I was like, yeah, this is really fun. And then not even, what, two weeks later, two or three weeks later, the season ends. And it's weird because I covered the game where they had, the NBA had just made the rules where they were going to change how interviews were going to be conducted. You know, um, it was, I think, that Monday oh, – it feels like oh, – gosh. must have been that Monday or Tuesday. But basically it was pregame. You know, we went to shoot around. And instead of going right to the players, we had to go to a podium. And, you know, they came and they talked to us. It was really weird. But then it got to a point where, like, okay, cool. Taylor Jenkins, the Grizzly coach, comes in for his, you know, pregame stuff that we always do. He comes in the middle of the dining room where we do have our postgame stuff. 
we're all sitting there with a bunch of like, you know, other workers eating and everything. We're like, how's this going to work? <laughs> like interviewing him with all the folks around. Um, and then after the game is over, we talked to the players and I remember thinking to myself, I probably saw the last game with fans for a while. Like I thought that. And then Wednesday comes around, the Grizzlies are on the road going to Portland. I didn't go on the road trip. And then I'm out getting dinner and we all get the text alert from the NBA that actually, no, we got the alert from the Utah jazz that basically the game had been canceled. And we're like, okay, what happened? And then everyone got the word that Rudy Gobert tested positive and then immediately got the text, NBA suspense season. You're just like, holy crap. Like, this is – that night was just madness. Like, you're – I'm, I'm poor, of course, going to report them because i got to write that story up. But you're just like, of everything that happened in two months, like, getting this beat, the Grizzlies are on this high turn. The Grizzlies went to the All-Star break with this great winning streak. They had just lost this four-game road trip. All they lost every game on that four-game road trip. They lost two of their players to injury, and you thought, okay, they're going to get. They're supposed to get Justice Winslow back for the first time this year because he just got traded for Andre Iguodala. They were going to probably get him back for that Portland game, and now it's like boom, everything's on pause. It was really, really weird and really kind of surreal. Almost to kind of see how that just stopped right there. Uh, that's a great specific story for kind of your beat, but in the general sense, I mean, you're a sports guy. What's well, been a little bit more than a year, right? That you've been in Memphis. Two years. Two years. Okay. Two years. Wow. Two years. Okay. Time flies. So you're in Memphis and, um, covering sports. Basically you covered the university of Memphis before you got the Grizzlies beat. Um, and now there's no real sports to cover. How have you and your staff at, at the, at the paper been dealing with that? It's been it's been tough. I mean, you know, as a, as a sports staff, it's been really challenging for us to really try to, like, find stuff to cover. You know, our bosses are still, you know, demanding the most of us, the best of us. But we're all trying to figure out really how to cover sports at a time where there's really nothing going on. Like earlier this week, we spoke to Taylor Jenkins for the first time. And it was weird because I was like, this is the first time we've spoken to him since this end of the month ago. And that was kind of yeah. a crazy, crazy thing for a minute so basically it's been trying to like make things you know go as they go um we've all the sports you know we've all taken shifts in news to kind of help out our great news staff which has been went from covering a tornado in nashville which was about a, a week before everything changed to now this i mean we gladly went in there to help them um so it's been really an adjustment i mean just trying to get used to covering news trying to realize you know sports really has an interesting place now in the sense that it doesn't have a place um, so it's been a challenge, not just for us, but I'm sure every news outlet trying to figure out, like, how do you cover a pandemic? But as sports writers, how do you cover without anything to cover? Like, unless you talk to players directly, that's, you know, you don't have much access to going to anything else. College sports, we know there's, you know, limited access. So it's really been an unusual challenge for us. And I think it's really kind of seeing kind of how um, how sports really has been this dominant force that, once it's gone, people aren't sure what to do for the most part. It's a weird thing. I mean, for me, being I mean, covering college basketball, we lost March Madness, but then yet there's still coaching hires and firings going on. So yeah, it's not it, it's not business as usual, but there is business being being done. How did the cancellation of March Madness hit you? That was actually interesting because so it was the same week. So again, Grizzlies are on their road trip. I'm still in Memphis. Our Tigers basketball writer 
and the columnists were in Dallas. Or I think it was Dallas Fort Worth. They were in they were at the AAC tournament. So they were there and the AAC had not canceled their tournament as of Wednesday night. So it was a matter of what's gonna happen here. So they went to the they got to the arena Thursday thinking they're still playing games. And then all of a sudden, the domino effect, everything just started going. I mean, it was really weird watching it here at home. And then when they canceled March Madness, I was like, Yeah, they have to. Like I was I wasn't by that point I wasn't shocked. Like once the NBA said, pause, we gotta, you know, shut this down, I started thinking everything else has to shut down, right? Like there's no way they can keep this going even with, without fans. There's no way they can do it because, you know, at the time we all figured, you know, we needed to like sequester and make sure we're all safe. So it hit me in a way of like, man, like March Madness is gone. The NBA right now is gone. I mean Major League Baseball said they're going to postpone the season at that point. I mean, it was that kind of hit me a little bit more. It was like, okay, this is really going to be something that's going to just have a domino effect on every element of sports now. I was at, well, I was in Anaheim waiting for the Big West tournament, and we had already they had already determined they were going to play without fans, and it was a little uneasy. I was at a hotel in Anaheim on Wednesday night, and thinking that you know if it's if it's too dangerous for the fans how long before we determine it'll be too dangerous for the players being there in close contact. And in the big West, the women's tournament started early. So they played that women's tournament on Tuesday and Wednesday. And so we're waiting on the hotel on uh, Wednesday night. And once we saw that um, the NBA canceled, I remember I was in the room with a broadcast partner. I turned to him and said, you know, we're not playing tomorrow. And uh, obviously I wanted the games to go on, but understanding that there's kind of more at stake here than just these games. And then about, uh, the bus to the arena was at 10.20. We had a noon game on Thursday morning. The bus to the arena was about 10.20. And then I think it was about 10 of 10. The Big West called and said, yeah, we're, we're done. We're not playing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it was, you know, it's one of those things that was, was really rare, uh, you know, hasn't really happened in, in my lifetime. I remember there have been seasons canceled for various other reasons, but never for a health reason kind of like this that – you know, longstanding uh, tournament like that just wasn't even played, which kind of boggled the mind a little bit. Um, you mentioned that part of your duties now, you're on the news staff as well. Take me through what they've been having you doing, because obviously the new, you know, and, and, and props to the journalists. LA Times doing a great job as well in terms of covering this outbreak and trying to figure out, provide some answers at least, not if not all the answers, they're at least trying to provide some of the answers to this whole COVID-19 situation. How's it been on your end being on the news beat again? It's been really helpful. Like I always respected our, our staff and other news journalists in the city who've done an amazing job, you know, covering so many things, but to be up close and kind of to see more of what they're doing and focusing on that, I'm just in awe of just kind of like, how much they have to do and how much they need to, you know, keep everyone informed. And, you know, every day there's a briefing from the Shelby County offices about the number of cases and how many people have been, you know, who have, who have passed away and numbers are just staggering. And then it's the same thing with the governor. Um, they're reporting that as well. And I feel like those are the most important items of the day. It's almost like people want to know how bad is it going to get? What else has to be taken away? So for me, that first week when I was on news, I was on news right after the NBA was suspended I was keeping track of businesses that were um, closing or staying open. I went to the Stacks Museum to cover their last day of operations before they temporarily shut down. Um, I spoke to a restaurant owner who said that she was going to forego her her paycheck 
to make sure that her employees would still be able to, you know, get paid. And this was on, I believe, St. Patrick's Day, which feels so far away now. Mm-hmm. But just doing just doing that was just like, okay, this is this is kind of what I'm doing now: gathering information, telling stories. There's no games to cover, so you're doing your basic journalist training, and it was really empowering. And so this week, I mean, I've done stories from about how a group of volunteers got together over the weekend and they sewed together thirty thousand in in ninety five masks to donate to a hospital. Um, it turned into like it was a short project that was going to involve like 15 teams of people working on it. But as word spread, more and more people wanted to get on board. And so it went from doing like 6,000 to doing all 30,000. And now that's going to get spread out. And I think that to me, that story was more meaningful than any sports story I'm going to write over the next, you know, however long this is. But that was about people being volunteers, doing good work. And then I had a silly story about an 11 year old girl who said, you know, who just on a whim was like, I want to play hopscotch. And so she made hopscotch squares and then she looked at the Guinness world record and said, I want to go for that. I asked her, I said, what made you do this? She's like, I don't know. I just wanted to do it. So to me, that's kind of the, the fun of this is like, you find these like cool news stories where it's telling the story of the community and you feel more connected to the city and everything. And I think that's what's the benefit of it at all is um, as sports reporters, sometimes we operate in our own bubble of like, we cover the team, you know, the team is what we're focused on, but to cover news, you really get connected to the community. And I think I've been really gracious that in doing so I've gotten to get a little bit more about Memphis in me from talking to more and more people. I think that's been great. It's the one thing about sports, even covering sports that you forget about when you get into it. Like you mentioned, you know, you're into covering a team or a sport of performance, but in the end, all journalism, whatever you want to call it, newspaper, electronic, media, and print, whatever it is, is about people. You're really, you're covering people and people's reactions. And it's easy to get caught up in the negativity of this pandemic. But some of the stories you mentioned, it just kind of shows the resilience of the human condition in terms of what some people are doing to combat this thing. Very literally, people on the front lines risking their lives. And it's not all the people you think. Obviously, it's the first responders and the doctors who are used to that kind of thing. But, you know, literally, bus drivers, grocery workers, truck drivers, all these people out there who are kind of making society continue to run are, are doing a great service just overall to, to the community and society in general, as, as you mentioned. Definitely. And I think that's what's, you know, so great about this is you really become more in tune to that. Like, I know that, you know, I, you know, I thought to myself, I'm going to just stay home and cook more, but part of me wants to like go out and, you know, go, go out to eat just to support a local restaurant. Because I, from doing that story, I understand that a lot of these restaurants are going to be struggling, you know, and I want to just do my part because I want to support the city and support fellow Memphians, you know? And I think that's what's really made this whole thing reminder that, you know, even though coming together, I feel is weird because we're not really coming together. We're coming together to stay apart, if that makes sense. But yeah. it's we, we are kind of like, hey, let's just check in on each other, check in on your friends a little bit more. And I think that's what's really kind of made this a little bit more easier at times to bear. We were talking because, you know, you're you're an L.A. native and we we're talking before talking about watching the the the, uh, the shots and the video of the city of L.A. 
kind of with nobody in the streets. And I was telling you about, you know, I lived in a number of different neighborhoods in the city and I love going for walks, even like late at night, you know, you're out there one, two in the morning, there's still people out on the street, but it's just really interesting now as you go out there and maybe it's you and one other person on the corner of a busy intersection that, you know, if it was, everything was normal, there'd be cars bumper to bumper, but now all of a sudden there's not, there's maybe a car or two rolling past you as you walk through a stoplight. Yeah, I'll tell you this. When I went to get food on, I think it was last weekend or something else, I just happened to see somebody that I knew from the Grizzlies, um, one of the staff members on the street. We just, you know, kind of talked, kept in our distance, but just talking for like two minutes. And it was good to just have that conversation. Um, And anytime I pick up my food, I always try to ask the, you know, the people bringing it out to me, like, hey, how are you guys holding up? How y'all doing over here? Just to give a conversation because, you know, for us, we're all kind of doing this on our own apart, but when you see people, it just kind of makes you happy. Like, Hey, I see another soul. Like this is, it's kind of encouraging a little bit. Uh, I didn't want to bring this up, but I, you mentioned that one of your first assignments on the West coast trip, you got to call cover later game at Staples. Obviously you're of the exact right age. You're of that Kobe Bryant generation. Um, that happened after you were on the NBA beat. Uh, and I, I think I think you, you tweeted about it a little bit and you wrote about it a little bit. But take me through that experience of the of the Kobe Bryant tragedy tragedy, kind of where where your place was uh, in terms of uh, your proximity to that. Sure. So I'll just start by just kind of like t- going through that day, because I think the day really kind of summarizes how I felt. So I'm driving from church to go to get some food before the the, the, um, the Grizzlies play the Suns that night. And I saw Twitter and I first I said, no way, couldn't believe it. I'm going to wait for some more confirmation. And then it happened. And I'll be perfectly honest with you, Gil, I pulled over and cried. Like, I just pulled over and cried. Because for me, growing up, I remember when Kobe was drafted. I remember being in junior high when he was drafted. And I remember, you know, I was reading Slam Magazine a lot. So I got to read about the high school kids. So I remember seeing this kid, Kobe. I was like, who is this, like, brash young dude who's, like, jumping over, you know, who's got all these dunks, who's taking Brandy to the prom and all that stuff. Like, who is this kid? And then he comes to L.A., and I'm like, okay, cool. But then remember that summer, they also got Shaq, and that was a much bigger story. So I was like, okay, maybe this Kobe Ryan kid will be cool. But then I remember so much about, you know, growing up watching him in L.A. I remember the championships. I remember 98 when he started the All-Star game. I remember those moments that, you know, where he kind of showed that, you know, he could take over games a little bit. And then, of course, you know, I'd be remiss to say I'd, I remember the summer where he was arrested in Colorado for the uh, sexual assault charges. And it was right after my dad passed. It was a month after my dad passed away. So it was almost like this, you know, that summer was, you know, already going to be difficult on me because of losing my dad. And then to see this happen with Kobe, you just felt all these emotions of sadness, of of just, you know, disbelief, of just, you know, great shame at you a little bit. And then you watched, you know, kind of how he became, you know, this this different figure in L.A. You remember all those moments. And I think all that came to my head when I drove to the stadium or the, the, the arena. And I was just I was just like, I need to get to the stadium arena before anybody else does process this because I got I'm going to have to start writing about this. And so, of course, during the game, it opened with the 24 uh, second violation and um, the eight second violation. And I just lost it. I, I, I recorded it knowing it was probably going to happen. The crowd's cheering Kobe's name. I'm crying behind the camera. I'm just like, I don't care who sees me. Like, this is, this is a painful moment, you know, because this is, you know, somebody that I grew up watching and who have 
for almost all those 20 years, I can remember those moments. And I remember watching his last game with my mom. And it was one of the first times it felt like we had watched a game together in a, in a while. And I had said to myself that day, okay, let me get home from covering this high school baseball game. I'm going to watch this. So I played it on the radio, got home. I was like, all right, all right, all right. But the end of the game, everything starts happening. Mom and I are just kind of cheering, cheering, and I'm like losing my head for a minute. And for that moment, I stopped being a reporter and a jaded sports fan, and I became a kid again watching Kobe like, yes, like I'm cheering him on. I'm like, this is amazing. And I think it was just kind of that release that reminded me of like, man, like this guy, um, he meant so much to the city, to fans. And I'll be honest, I didn't want to be in Memphis those first two days. Like I was glad to be at the game that day. I talked to two guys on the Lakers, I mean, on the Grizzlies who were from L.A. But that Monday, I just wanted to be in L.A. so badly. Like, I'll be honest, Gil. Like, I wanted to go home and just be around friends and family who understood what it meant. And I was really struggling that day. Um, I wore a Lakers hoodie that day to work. I was just – I was struggling. I was struggling that day. The the guys and the, you know, the, the athletes that you can – and I think it's a great point you make. They're just so identifiable with their city, you know. I mean, being a New Jersey kid, they're guys who just immediately identifiable with New York, who've played their whole careers in New York, and and they've never. I mean, it's been a long time since somebody. I guess you have to go back to Magic to have somebody at that level in the in the city of Los Angeles. Um, you know, maybe maybe a couple of the Kings, maybe a couple of Dodgers, but you know, Kobe was so larger than life with all the championships. And to me, what really hit it to me is, you know, obviously, like you said, we're like kind of jaded, you know, jaded sports journalists now, but um, in I saw his place in the context of the NBA and not being from L.A., I don't think I ever really full under, uh, understood the full extent of his relationship with the city of Los Angeles um, because of just the level of success the Lakers had while he was there with Shaq and without Shaq and just that he was he was one of their own. I mean, he came and played his whole career with just one team, which, you know, as you and I know, doesn't really happen a whole lot these days. So there were a lot of factors in there. And then also it kind of he came at a time when the NBA was really escalating into the that was the greatest show you know it was the greatest show in sports for a for a time as well and so that part of it i kind of had maybe not forgotten but maybe underrated it with regard to his his effect and overall just connection to the city of los angeles which clearly you know now i understand a little bit better than i did then yeah and i think that you know you know you being around a lot of our mutual friends who are in the media out there you see kind of how just those, those moments with Kobe are just really amazing because it's just like, okay, you watch this kid grow up. Okay, cool. But like you said, it was really about timing because he came of age after Jordan left. Yeah. And so you had Shaq, you had Duncan, and Kobe's clawing for that title. And Kobe really kind of came into his own really at the end of the dynasty and when Shaq left, even though those Laker teams weren't great. But that was kind of where he was like, all right, I'm in this space. Let's go. Um, but then when he won those two championships at the back end um, with Powell and those guys, um, you really kind of realized how much he had been embraced by the city. He was no longer just the guy who was the brash kid or he was no longer the guy everyone blamed when Shaq left. Now he was he was one of L.A.'s. He was the guy that beat the Celtics. You know, he was the leader of that team. And I think in a way I didn't grow up with magic in that sense, but he was a really unifying force that where everybody if, whether you liked him or didn't like him, you just respected the way he carried himself um, and how he did things. 
And it was also to see the reaction of the greats. I mean, the guys, you know, I'm a, I'm a Magic Bird Jordan generation NBA guy. And to see all those guys kind of come and, and talk about his greatness and, and how he affected them, you know, to see Jordan accompanying Kobe's widow at the, at the memorial service was just what was just wild. Cause that was the kind of generations of the NBA coming together in a way that they never had really. Yeah. I thought that was, that was powerful to see Jordan because again, you don't see him show that much emotion at the hall of fame. We remember him having that. I love the speech, but that petty speech he had where he just right, like, right. needled everybody, but to see him, you know, get emotional to, to talk about how Kobe was like a little brother to him, how Kobe was that guy that humanized him, but also respected that same competitive edge. Um, I thought that was as powerful as it was a different power than when Vanessa spoke. But when Jordan spoke, you were like, wow, like Jordan can is barely getting through his speech crying. And like, when have we ever seen him, you know, show that emotion? And then of course he had that funny line about how he became a, he has another yeah. crisis. Me. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, his his greatness was just respected by everybody. Like I remember somebody said that. Think about guys like Allen Iverson, you know, Stephen Jackson, guys of that like grittier era that you know you seem would think would be like the antithesis of Kobe Bryant. They loved and respected him. I remember Allen Iverson just talking one day. I think it was after the Kobe got arrested. He said, "We never put Kobe on that pedestal. He was always one of us. Like he was. We're all in this together." I thought that was really interesting because Kobe because. You think of AI as being like this poster child for the counterculture, Kobe kind of symbolizing the mainstream, if you will. But mm-hmm. they had respect for each other because of work ethic, you know? And I think that said a lot about how much Kobe was respected because his life, what his life showed is you put in the work, you do the job, you keep being great your craft. That's what it's all about. And talking to my friends, they really – love that about him so much like i have a friend who told me that he didn't you know he grew up without knowing his father as much so he used kobe as kind of like the model for how to be you know a good kid to be a great son and now that he's you know being a great husband he's being a great father to his new kid like he said like he put that same energy into that because of what he saw in kobe and i think that speaks to his um kobe's legacy is that he inspired people to push themselves in a way you know um, you, you brought up a great thing with uh, the, you know, the, the sexual assault in Colorado. I, you know, and it's a split thing because obviously as soon as, you know, the, the hot takes started to come out, people were asking, well, is it appropriate to bring this up at this time, you know, with the family and whatnot? And I, I really believe, and I had to think about this for a long time, Evan, I really believe that he made an effort. And, and you know, listen, it's something, it, I wrong you, Okay. In the end, I can do everything I want to do to have you forgive me, but until you forgive me, there, there's no point to it. I got to live my life. And I really do think he made as much of an effort as you could to be, you know, I, you know as you could to be contrite about something like that in terms of supporting women, the women, women's basketball and supporting his, you know, daughter, obviously tragically lost his daughter, Gianna, kind of pushing her interest in, in the game. And you're never going to erase that, you know, whatever people are going to think, whatever they're going to think. But I think there, there's there's two different ways to do about it. There's, as we've learned, there's the PR apology, non-apology, and then there's kind of the way ones ones live. And I, I really do think you can mark how uh, you can mark Kobe Bryant from before the incident, and after the incident. You can see that there was an attempt and an escalation to maybe that that first part of his career ended between 
you know, between Colorado and they're losing in the 04 finals and then Shaq left. And then after the time, he and Shaq kind of butted heads and Shaq had to be pushed out. That was the second aspect of his career, maybe act two, where I think he did change fundamentally inside himself to try to be a better person like you're talking about. I think so. And I've, I've learned a lot from, from people talking about this because at the time, and I'm, I'm very, I've been open with this to myself. There were opinions I had during the case that I regret now being a much more wiser and more aware person. Like at the time I was 18, I had, you know, very limited ideas about, you know, obviously, you know, sexual assault is wrong, but you know, I always had this belief that, you know, you don't rush to judgment. But then as I got older, you realize all the nuances and everything. And I, and I credit a lot of, you know, women sports writers, women advocates and activists who like enlightened me on this. So it's really interesting now, like what, you know, I, I speculate now what would have happened if that case happened, you know, in this era versus 16, 17 years ago. And I'm not sure, but I do think that you give, I personally believe in, this is just me speaking. I believe that when you do something egregious, you have to do the work. You have to find a way to atone for it, not just with your words, but with your actions. And whether people forgive you or not, that is completely their call. But you have to do the work because you understand that, hey, there's something that I did that I have to learn from and get better from. And I also believe that if you don't give people room to do that, then where is the incentive to change? Right. So I think for me, what I saw from him was, yes, he was still the same, you know, tough teammate to play with or whatever. But when I see him how he became such an advocate for women's sports, how so many, you know, women, female athletes looked to him and said, you know, he really cares, he gets it. Um, I think that was his way of trying. And I think I wonder, you know, again, we don't know what those conversations were like with him and Vanessa. We don't know what conversations were like. I'm sure those were difficult moments, you know, for them. But what I do know is that from what I saw, again, from what we saw, we saw someone do his best to do the work. Um, and maybe, again, there are some people who have said, that there may have been more work he needed to do. That's their, I they totally have the right to say that. Um, but for me, what I saw from him was somebody who saw what he had done, saw the way he was living his life, needed to make changes. And from what we saw, it looked like he made those changes and was doing the work necessary to be a different person. So um, it is something, like you said, I think there is that like demarcation from before Colorado, after Colorado in 2004. And I think that's kind of where we see this this transformation or this period of, you know, reevaluating who Kobe is. Yeah. And, and then yeah, the, the key for me was it, it definitely seemed that he put thought into it. You know, that's a situation where all those guys, you know, NBA guys, M MLB, NFL, you have people around you that tell you, Hey Evan, this is what you need to do. And for the most part, Guys will just do kind of what they're told to do and then be done with it. It seemed to me that for him it was kind of a living legacy that he really wanted to kind of get ahead of what was what had what had, what had occurred, you know. And and maturity is a big part of that. You can talk about that with his relationships with certain teammates as well. I mean, Shaq being the main one. Um, and I think on a lower level we can all relate to that experiencing. I mean, you're a different you're a different person at 25, hopefully, than you are going to be at 35. Definitely, and I think that. you know enlightenment as we get older and we realize things and now there's been a lot of thinking that says well maybe we shouldn't have to like go through these periods of bad behavior or bad logic to get there and i agree with that i think by changing behaviors early on you can definitely make sure that a lot of young men and a lot of young women make smarter decisions but i do think that there should be room to see how people evolve and change because 
that's the beauty of life is I like to see how people are different from in their 20s to their 30s now. I like to see how people change their minds even over a two or three year span because life is about learning and not being so steadfast on what you believe that you can open up and say, you know what, let me change my mind on this. So um, I, I, I give Kobe credit for that because I think had Kobe gone in another direction, you easily could criticize him for it. But, you know, the work that he did, I think, should definitely be part of that story. And again, I'm not going to sit here and say that people who think otherwise should be silent. Because if anything, they should be loud because I do believe that there is, you know, a conversation to be had and it has been had and I'm OK with it. But I also think we have to have a fuller conversation about where do we include the idea of doing the work and judging somebody on that as much as reminding them of, hey, this thing that happened shouldn't be forgotten either. Uh, good points, obviously. What I want to find out from you, though, is aside from now, you're we're all we're all under stay at home orders. What are you doing now to kind of fill the time a little bit? I know there are a couple of TV series you're catching up on. <laughs> yeah. So um, I, I was watching. I started watching Narcos Mexico, got got caught up on season two. Um, as everyone else, I watched Tiger King, which was a mess. I don't want to get it out. If I want to get into that, mm-hmm. that show was a complete yeah. mess. But uh, I finally started watching The Wire. Um, I bought the box set when I moved here. I said, I'm going to watch it. I'm going to watch it over the summer. Well, I got time. So every night for the last few weeks, I've been watching The Wire and I've been enjoying it. I just finished season two. I'm going to try to start season three after we're done here. And I've been really enjoying it. I mean, it's it's been a lot to just see why people love this show. And two seasons in, I'm just like, this is this is amazing. So I've been I've been catching up on my on my binging for that. <laughs> Yeah, no, uh, I mean, I love season one just really grabbed me. And I, 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 you know, my, I still maintain the wire is the best American television series ever produced. And what's interesting is I like season two It's interesting. So I I like season two the first time through. Mm. And then once I finished the series, I liked it for a lot of different reasons than I did when I initially went through it. And I, I still say people get shocked when I say this, you know, a few people aren't, but I still think to date season two is probably my favorite season of that show of the simply wire? because yeah, simply because it's such a, I mean, when I saw season two, I you have to understand. I love season one. I, I was dialed into all those characters. It took me a couple episodes to get on board with it, but loved it. And then season two began and, and you've seen it now. So I don't want, I, I'll throw a couple spoilers in there. I was amazed at how much work they did to the show. You kind of take two of the major characters, in essence, out of the out of the narrative, and you're still able to make it work, you know. And that that to me was that was the greatest thing, and it just fed unto itself. They it were able to kind of do that every year between season three and season five as well. And I just thought season two was kind of the jumping off point because if it hadn't worked in that season, I don't think they make some of the choices they make three, four, and five. That's interesting, and I'm sure I'm probably going to look for that as we get going with season three. But I think what I like about David Simon is that uh, from what I've read about him, because after The Wire, I started reading more about him because I found him to be really fascinating. What I like about him is that he has these, you know, he's he's been a reporter. He's got all these experiences from, like, covering homicide, and he brings it into this level of storytelling with a very literary style where you have these characters, you have these memorable names, you have these memorable montages if you like i watched his last series i think before this one treme which was in new orleans right. and i loved kind of how he how they did that as far as like 
create this good slice of life in New Orleans, at least from an outsider's perspective. But he created these characters you get really invested in. And with The Wire, you're doing the same thing. It's really kind of like, you know, I don't want to say Dickens-like because that's my go-to for, like, great characters. But Dickens always created these great characters. Simon's got these great characters that just stick in your head. And I think what I love about season two was that, like you said, they took some chances. I still struggled with it. Like, I'm a, I don't know if I'm going to say it's my favorite season. But if it comes back where I look at things, I'm like, okay, this is, this is, this is here, this is here. I'll look at it kind of, I'm hoping to look at it like I look at Breaking Bad season two, which was basically a lot of characters came in, a lot of groundwork was laid, and then when season three comes on, boom, it hits. That's what I'm kind of hoping for with The Wire a little bit after seeing season two. Yeah, no, season three is is, is a big one. I mean, that, that they really hit a home run season three, but it, looking back... I realized all the groundwork they laid in season one and two is just amazing. And, you know, like you said, that show is really about the characters and how they come and just the characters themselves and how they come in and out of the narrative is really just, I mean, like you said, he is a tremendous storyteller and yeah, Dickens is, I think is really an apt, probably an apt comparison because everything you read about from read from Charles Dickens is just so vivid and they just so, you know, I think a lot of, and I, I've talked about this with other people because we're doing these movie podcasts. I think where sometimes storytelling has lost in, in and of itself is you need to over-explain who people are, you know. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I did a podcast with the great Steve Went about um, about the Bad News Bears, and one of the great things about the Bad News Bears is how they establish certain characters, and Kelly Leak is one. Mm-hmm. How we kind of see him as like a looming presence, and then. We're boom, we're introduced to him, and it's just it's real, you know, it's real easy to accept and understand. And I think there's a lot of similar uh, execution in what uh, David Simon does, and they, they just do a tremendous job in that series. And obviously, the experience as a reporter helps him out a lot, and relationships with you know politicians and police and and doing all that stuff clearly colored it so well. It's just so real and so authentic uh, in terms of how he's able to, to execute it. And the, the thing for me that sold it is, you know. I would talk to people from Baltimore about it and they'd be like, oh yeah, you know, I know a, you know, they'd name the characters. Oh, I know this guy and I know that guy, you know? Yeah. I, I have a good friend who's from Baltimore and he, he was excited when I was watching him. He said, yo, like that's my city. They did such a good job with it. Like you and me need to talk about this. Cause you, I, I love it so much. I was like, all right, cool. I'm gonna hit you up, man. Like if you think this is real, like I'm on, but yeah, like that's what I think was his, his authenticity is what's really good about it, is that his shows feel real like they don't feel like they're sure coding. they don't feel like it's uh, idealized version his shows feel real i think that's what i love so far is the realism of it and it's uh, you know living in la i'm sure you do too i have a lot of friends who are in the business actors and whatnot and one of their biggest complaints is you know they they don't like so there's a lot of projects now where it's just you know hey they're acting to act or they're writing that to win awards, you know, where sometimes part of this part of the, the, the whatever the project is doesn't really serve the story. And I think that's the one thing in that, you know, the, the setup for The Wire, they really serve that main narrative. Everything kind of feeds the main storyline in that first season. But we're still it, it's not like it's limited. There's still really it's still really rich and really vibrant. All the characters around it that are leading us all to the same conclusion. Yeah, I, I see that. Because if you ask me, like, you know, through two, through two seasons, who's the standout actor? Like, I can't really say, pers- you know, one standout performance because it feels like there's so many good layered performances that are just like, you know, 
yeah, Lester Freeman's character, who is, you know, really this interesting journey he's on. Obviously, Omar is this towering figure throughout everything. But then you have all these other minor characters that are so good. And you're just like, you know, who would you give? And I know the show didn't get any Emmy nominations, but who would you give one to? Like, there's so many good things where, to me, it's even more egregious that show never got nominated for Best Drama Series for an Emmy. My friend described it to me. Kind of its strength was also its weakness, you know. My friend said the wire is like when you have a friend of yours from school, high school, college, whatever, and they invite you to a family event. And it's just you're the only outsider there and it's just their family, you know. And there's some people you meet who they have all these interesting people in their families, you know. So you're at whatever, you're at Christmas dinner or you're at Thanksgiving dinner and you meet somebody else's family and you have a different person kind of taking you through each part of it, you know. And they'll tell you, oh, that's my Uncle Richie. He's crazy, you know. And then you find out how crazy he is, you know. And that's <laughs> Cousin Eunice. And she's <laughs> nuts too. And you find out how nuts Cousin Eunice, you know, not in a bad way, but you know what I mean. They're just, they just had that very unique flavor to them. Uh, and that's, I, I thought it was a, that was another real apt description of how that show is. It's like, you're being introduced to this family and you're meeting all these weird kind of dysfunctional members of it, but they all feed kind of a greater, a greater story. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's now I'm, I'm from New Jersey, born and raised. <laughs> and so it's like in my, in, in my DNA that I have to love the Sopranos, which I do, <laughs> but I, I think the one, the one weakness of the show is when Tony's not in the show, it's almost a different it's different, a different show. It's a different narrative altogether. They got better at it as the season went along, but he is such a larger-than-life presence in the center of the story in the first couple of seasons that when they go away from him, I really thought there was it was you know it was like watching a you know a new uh, a newborn colt kind of try to find its, le- its legs. It eventually got there, but it took a little bit. Whereas I thought the wire was a little more seamless in that, and I think it was because what they did in season one when you pull the main two antagonist out for a season it makes you work all those other muscles it's like cross training almost it that's a good comparison like it definitely makes you feel like okay why are we going over here and there's a point to it and then they bring it back and it took me a while to figure it out but i did figure out and i'm looking forward to when i rewatch season two kind of like what i see that's going to make me appreciate it more because everyone pretty much said that i respect like season two is so important um and i'm really looking forward to that but now my goal, kind of a selfish goal with this was finish the story, finish the series, so I can go read my guy Jonathan Abrams' book about the show, All the Pieces That oh, Matter. I want, to, I want to read his book because he wrote about it. And I was like, dang, I really want to read it because he's one of my favorite writers. Um, he's also been someone that I've gotten to meet personally. But you know, I want to be able to be like, I want to read this book to see what comes out of it. So for me, it's like you dive into this show knowing it's so great, and you're wondering, okay, how's it going to be great? And then you see it, and it's like, yeah, I'm hooked. I was hooked after the first episode. Like I was hooked. Like this is this is really, really good. But yeah, like I feel like it's even more egregious that the show didn't get those major honors, but at the same time, and I realized this with the Oscar a few years ago when Selma didn't win something, I was like, Does it matter if you win if you make a statement? Like right. when they for Selma it was they performed uh Glory, the song that Common and John Legend won for the Oscar. They performed that and it was such a powerful performance. I was like who cares if you won? They're going to remember that for years after this. And with The Wire, The Wire's been off the air over a decade, and here we are, as it's being you know talked as the most the best show, American show of the, of the century, the, with the war on drugs. It's such a very good capsule of that. Like to me, it's almost like I almost you know as mad as I am, it didn't win awards. From seeing it now, I'm like, dude, we're still part of this like secret almost that this show 
that people who know it love it, but were part of the secret. It was like, yeah, this show was so transformative, so good. And, you know, here we are. Yeah. And I remember, you know, it, it was a weird, it was a weird navigation for me not having HBO. I saw, I forget, I saw season one as it came through. And then I moved and whatnot, and I didn't have HBO the next place I was living. So it was a matter of I got to figure out how to be able to watch this every week, you know. And just yeah. like at, at my job, they would they installed uh, they installed it, you know, in the break room they they got Directv and they had HBO as part of the the part of the package. So I would I would I would volunteer to work the night shift on Sunday so I could watch those episodes <laughs> after work in in the break room. Um, before I let you go, and I know you got you got work to do. A uh, couple of final things to wrap up. Uh, covering the Memphis University of Memphis uh, football, what was that experience like for you this year? They had a pretty good year. They've been pretty good the last two to three years, actually. Really, like the last six years, to be honest. Like since 2014, they've kind of been on this turnaround where in 15, they beat Ole Miss, which was like the biggest win in school history. 17, they beat UCLA, and then they go on a, I think, a seven, eight game winning streak. Um, but um, yeah, like covering Memphis this season was really interesting. Like we had a book signing for a book that we did and I'll show, I'll show you a picture of the book because it's really cool. I know the people who are listening can't see it, but when you see the cover of this, you'll be like, this is so cool. Like there was a book that was done about the season that we put out and I see you nodding. like, yeah, it's, it's really cool. So for me, what was so exciting about this season was they played Ole Miss and I'm excited for the game because you know, they're playing Ole Miss. What's the crowd going to be like? Memphis, Ole Miss have this great rivalry. And then the game lived up to hype because it was a close game. Memphis won. I'm like, okay, this could be cool. And then you realize kind of how this season is going to go. I think they had a game where they, they lost the Temple, had a controversial call. We were there and we were just like, yeah, maybe this season isn't going to go the way it does. And then all of a sudden, you you follow the rising, and, the rising highs of this team. It, it keeps getting higher and higher. And then college game day comes here. I mean, who would have ever thought? I, I never thought coming to Memphis, I would cover a game that'd be featured on ABC. Well, no, excuse me, scratch that. I never thought I'd be featured on a game that was like the premier game for ABC. And college game day would be here. Never would have thought that. Never would have thought I'd be waking up at five in the morning to go to Beale Street and watch like thousands of fans come there and have probably one of the best college game day experiences ever. That was so much fun. And then the game, that game had, you know, 57,000 fans there. You know, it was all blue. I was walking around just in awe about it. And then the fact that Memphis won that game was even better because it was just like this feeling of they've reached this pinnacle of like hype and excitement and they won. That was as fun a season as I've ever had covering any sport. Like I've covered some really fun, fun teams. I've covered some great kids in high school from L.A., but that season was so much fun because you really got to see a team fight, come together, dig in their heels, battle a little bit more. And you, nobody, I mean, people expected this team to maybe win 10 games, but then they not only won 10 games, they got to the Cotton Bowl. They won a championship, uh, the, the conference championship for the first time in 50 years. Um, outright, she say, the first outright championship they won in 50 years. That was fun. But then also in all of that going on, I had to cover a coaching search because Mike Norvell got hired after the after they won the AAC championship, got hired by Florida State 24 hours later, which was a very like weird element for me to be in where you're like, you want to enjoy this great game. But in your mind, you're like, after the game, everything is going to get crazy. Um, so 
but it was a fun season. Like I will always remember this season being really fun and for a team and a program that's been building for this moment, um, being in Dallas, being at Jerry world. I mean, that was, how cool was that? I'm a Cowboys fan. So I was just loving it. Okay. I, was, I was loving it. I mean, um, are you a Giants fan by any chance, Gil? Yeah, I'm a I'm a long suffering Jets fan. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. My, my yeah. condolences, but at least we're not division rivals. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. No, I I remember it was it was just really a my you know my dad was not much of a sports guy, but he would like to we watch football on Sunday because we're all home on Sunday, and he just he liked Parcells. I remember <laughs> you, I, I I was long before I'd moved out of and I came back and um pops like well can we turn on you know my brother had gotten the uh the package at my parents house and my dad's like hey can we turn the cowboys game on and this is when parcells was coaching i'm like the cowboy like where did that come up on the menu he's like well parcells you know so it was really interesting and a lot of it was really tough for a lot of giant fans to reconcile bill parcells working for jerry jones um i want to ask you push comes to shove will there be a major league baseball season in 2020 okay i don't want to be pessimistic um, I doubt it. I, I doubt that we're going to see live sports just from all the reports we're seeing from all the medical professionals. I do not have high hopes that we will, because I think there's just too many questions about safety. Like there's no way we can ensure that nobody can get tested. There's no way. I mean, we can maybe get guys get tested, but there's no way to ensure nobody can catch it. And I have a fear that let's say that someone tries to do it. Some league tries to do it. Let's say major league baseball. They tried this idea of sequestering everyone in Arizona one person gets it, it's yeah. a wrap. You got to cancel yeah. it. And yeah. I think that's yeah. going to be, a, again, from the NBA, it's a logistical nightmare, you know, because right now traveling is really difficult. Like, I know these guys fly charter jets, but, you know, imagine the magic trying to get everybody back home and all this stuff. I, I just don't see us returning to sports this year, live sports, unless we get, you know, a guarantee that everything can be safe, which means either we get the vaccine or, or what. Because, look, when they cancel the Olympics – I mean, everything's fair game or postponed, excuse me. Um, So I would say no. The same reason I would say for the NBA, I'm not, I would say probably no as well, just because there's so much we just don't know about this virus and how it can spread and who has it and who's not a carrier and, and everything. And really it's, if it does happen, I will be very surprised. But my gut is telling me, you know, let's look ahead to 2021, which is crazy to say, but yeah. We just have so much going on right now where you and I are both in our homes. No one's, you know, really, you know, if you're working outside, it's very rare. I mean, we just don't know right now. So, yeah, I would say no. Push comes to sub NFL. <sighs> I, I mean, it goes back to my point. I just don't know how we're going to do it, even without fans. I mean, I just yeah. don't know how it's going to happen unless you can make sure 100% that you can test everybody that nobody can catch it. I mean, I would be scared of playing a game and finding out that somebody catches it and then boom, everything just goes up and smoke again, you know? Yeah. Yeah. No, it's, I mean, that's to me what I think, uh, that's going to be the, 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 the earmark to me is the NFL. It's like, if the NFL shuts it down, then we know, wow, this is going to be something. I'll do you one better. What if there's no college football season? Right. Like I think, I think, I really think football is going to be that point where everyone's going to be like, oh, this is serious. Like, granted, the NBA, the Olympics, yes. But I feel like, especially in the South being here now, if football is canceled or postponed, you are going to see a lot of people who are like, uh-uh, we can't have this. And then if the NFL postpones, I mean, everyone's going to be more like. Well, it wasn't that the joke that that uh, there's some uh, some of the coaches, were, were uh, the Southern coaches were saying, hey, 
stay indoors so make, to ensure that we have a season. Yeah, pretty much. I mean, that's what people have been saying. Like, let's do what we can to see if this can happen. But I was reading an article at, at Sports Illustrated where they're talking about if football's not played, if college football's not played, the revenue hit that colleges are going to take. And so I think for the money, and this goes back to MLB too, for the money, they're going to try their best to do it. But I just don't know how, if we can't even gather as a society right now of more than 10 people, how can we get teams together to play sports and put them at risk, you know? So I would say it seems really unlikely as of right now. The next month to me is going to be big with regard to the the model, the numbers, and, and the testing to it. And I, that's the one thing that I just feel like – I'm not trying to get political at all, but man, even if you can't test particularly for the virus, if you can test for the antibodies, you can find out, kind of get an idea of, hey, these people can technically – can potentially return to the workforce. And, you know, it's, it's like – I mean, if you're a baseball guy, you know, a guy who's 20 for 50 is a 400 hitter. But how legitimate is that? You know, you need to kind of wait till they have a couple hundred at bats to to really see. You know, Tony Gwynn being twenty for fifty is different than Tori Lovello being twenty for twenty for fifty. Yeah, that's kind of how it works, right? Right. It's a sample right. size of it, and I think right now in this pandemic, we're kind of at the twenty for fifty point. Maybe in a month, we'll we'll know a little bit more. Hopefully, we will. And hopefully the healthcare professionals can kind of provide some more, you know, and, and they're learning too. Like they're, they haven't seen these numbers yet. And it's just, it's, it's so overwhelming at, at, at times for some people, you read the dispatches from the hospitals and you're like, wow, you know, if the doctors can't get a handle on it, I don't know how these other people are coming out and making these statements about when things are going to get going again. Yeah, I agree. I think that's where people have to remember that it's important to not, you know, I know we all love optimism. We want to be optimistic, but we also need to be real about what's going on in the world besides trying to get our lives back to normal. Like, yes, we all would love to be normal, but you kind of have to step outside of yourself for this, especially and say, what's going on in the world? And can we soberly say, you know what? Normal can wait because right now things aren't normal. All right. I know you have to get to the wire season three. So last thing for you is you're, as I, as I introduced you, you're a son of Los Angeles, but Memphis has been good to you. You seem to be enjoying it out there. Uh, is this a place you could stay long term? I mean, can you could you see yourself being the Memphis guy for a little bit? I've been here now for two years, and I really, really enjoy being here. I mean, the fun part we can talk about is yes, it's cheaper here. Um, I'm not spending as much money. Um, <laughs> I can I can live on my own without a roommate, you know, which is something I wouldn't be able to do in LA unless I was making a lot of money. Um, but professionally and personally like i think this is where i need to be right now i'm happy to be here i could see myself you know if they do hire me for the grizzlies full time i could see myself you know doing this for a little bit more um i could see myself being a part of the community i love the people here i love the atmosphere the culture um we'll see what happens i mean la is always going to be a part of my soul i mean when i go home i get rejuvenated because it's familiar to me but it also means that you know you can always go back home. I believe that I'm supposed to be in Memphis. I want to be in Memphis. And, you know, we'll see what happens down the road. But I'm definitely glad that I'm here now with this time because I've learned so much being here. Uh, is the commercial appeal – I'm guessing they're the big paper in town. Um, are, they, are they in pretty good shape even with the whole pandemic coming through? <laughs> well, funny you ask because, like, um, in, the, in the news this week, um, you know, USA Today has basically, you know, said that – all employees to take furloughs now once for the next uh, – a week-long furlough 
for the next three months, including this month. And I will be going on furlough in two weeks. So my colleagues have gone on furlough um, this week. So that's been the biggest change for us is um, we've had to deal with that, which has been very challenging, not just for us, but for all the Gannett properties. So it's been very challenging for us. Like we're trying to hang in and do our best, but it also is difficult now trying to cover a pandemic when you're, you know, short staffed. So we're trying to hang in the best we can and, you know, keep things going. And, you know, we definitely appreciate the ones who are still here, but over the next few weeks, it's definitely going to be a challenge for us. Evan Barnes, thanks again. Always great to chat with you, man. Enjoy season three. Thanks. Love you, man. Love the wire.